Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you. My name is Chris Ward, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Friends Church. And uh, as you begin here today, if you can do me a favor and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. And I, I don't know, is there a top row of a top balcony up there? The lights aren't on for you. Is, is, are they, there, there you go, there we go. Romans chapter 11 is where we are today. And uh, as you turn there, if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, you, you may remember I gave a message where I talked about uh, an upcoming conference we're having in March of next year that's called Reasonable Faith in an Uncertain World. We're partnering with Biola University. We have some great speakers coming out, including Lee Strobel, who's going to be talking about just topics related to our faith, why we know we can believe what we believe, and so on. Well, what I want to let you know is a couple of weeks from now, we're going to have kind of a mini preview of that conference in our weekend services. And on September 7th and 8th, in all three of our weekend services here, we're having what we're calling a conversation about God, faith, and culture. And actually, some of those speakers who will be at that conference, they're going to be here, and we're going to have kind of a, a Q&A time with those in place of our normal message. And they're going to be answering some difficult questions about God, about faith, and about what's going on in our world, and, and why, how we as Christians can navigate that and think about that, and so on. And so I want to let you know about this for two reasons. First of all, I want you to come to it. I want you to invite someone to it because I think it's going to be a really, really stimulating, interesting conversation that we're going to have. But then the other reason I want to let you know about it is because the questions that we want to ask these panelists, we want them to come from you. And so we have set up an email address, questions at friends.church. And if you email that anytime between now and the next couple of weeks, uh, I, I will receive them eventually and I will take a look at them. And it's from those questions that we'll get the list of questions that we will ask these speakers. And so I want to make you aware of that. So that's coming up September 7th and 8th. You don't do anything special for that. It's in our normal weekend services and it's something that I'm looking forward to. So with that uh, out of the way now, we turn our attention here to Romans chapter 11. I was given free reign this weekend to talk on whatever I wanted to talk on, which is always a little bit dangerous. Uh, but recently I I have felt just kind of drawn to this passage at the end of Romans 11, and so that's what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to read this passage right now, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see what we have for today. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and this is what he says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. And so, Father God, we come before you today, Lord, and we just thank you for uh, this time of worship, this time where we get the opportunity just to sing praises to you for who you are and what you have done. And God, we thank you now that we get the opportunity to turn now to your word. Father, and uh, in this message in particular, it is another act of worship as we see exactly, uh, not exactly, but we see uh, what your word says about who you are, Father, and uh, what that means for us. And so, God, I pray that you would speak uh, through me over the, the course of the next 35 minutes or so, Lord. I pray that the message you want, would want to get across is what is received, and I pray that all of us would leave change as a result of what you want to do here today. And so we just ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, um, one of the things that those of you who have been at this church for a while, one of the things that I hope you know about me, at least I hope this is true about me, is um, I try not to be someone who is prone to exaggeration. 
And what I mean by that is although I may not do it always as well as I would like to, I, I try not to say things from this stage just to get your attention or just for kind of dramatic effect. Uh, again, although I may not do it as well as I'd like, when I, when I do speak up here, I try to be measured in what I say. It's for that reason I hope you can believe me in the next thing that I'm going to say here. Uh, I don't say this for dramatic effect. I don't say this to get your attention. I say this instead because I've really begun to feel as though it is true. And that is in the course of the past week and a half or so of preparing for this particular message today. I've really gotten the feeling that this message I'm teaching today may be one of the most important messages I've given in seven years of being here at this church. In fact, more than that, I've really got the feeling that this may be one of the most important messages I have given in 10 years of, of regular kind of consistent teaching. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me in what I'm saying here, okay? I, I am not saying by that that this is going to be like the best message I've ever given before. In fact, in several parts, it's a little bit too clunky for my taste, but I couldn't figure out how to fix it. I'm also not saying by that that this is going to be the most popular message I've ever given before. In fact, I can guarantee that. I know the types of messages where I get a lot of positive emails. This is not going to be one of them, okay? I can tell you that up front. I also know, I'm also not saying by that, that what I'm going to say here this weekend is anything that is particularly novel or new or something that you haven't heard before. In fact, those of you who have been in the Christian faith for a while, you have no doubt heard messages like the one I'm going to give here this weekend. But for me, at least for me, I am ashamed to say, really, that it has taken me about 10 years to work up the courage to, to, to say what I'm going to say here today. It's taken me about 10 years to really work up the guts to say what I'm going to talk on here today. And so although this message is not novel or new or anything that maybe some of you haven't heard before, um, from my perspective at least, it is a long time coming. And it is something that is extremely important. And the reason I know that is because I think what we're talking about today, I think it gets to the heart of one of the biggest problems facing uh, Christianity today. And not just today. One of the biggest problems facing Christianity ever, that can ever face Christianity. And that is that sometimes we are prone to forget what all of this is about. We're prone to forget what all of this is for. And this was made clear to me by an email I received a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, I received an email from uh, someone who I think it's safe to say is investigating Christianity. Uh, this particular person, he's trying to figure out whether or not the Christian faith, whether or not, what, uh, whether or not Jesus is, is right for him. And given my role, I, I get emails like this from time to time. And in this particular email, this guy asked a lot of questions about what we believe and, and why we believe it. But there was one question in particular that he asked that stood out to me. In fact, I don't think I've ever received this particular question before. And the question that he asked is this, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he said this. He said, why doesn't life seem any better for those who believe in Jesus versus those who don't? Why doesn't life seem any better for those who believe in Jesus versus those who don't? And the observation that this person has made upon which I believe this question sits is an observation that probably many of us have made before. And that is quite simply, we Christians are not spared from the difficulties of this life. We Christians are not spared from the hardships that the rest of the world goes through. We get sick just like the rest of the world does. We go through financial struggles, just like the rest of the world does. We have struggles in relationships, just like everybody else does. 
we are not spared the difficulties of this life. And from an outsider's perspective, and maybe even sometimes from an insider's perspective, this doesn't seem to make sense. Because one of the things that we believe, in fact, one of the things I have really talked about in a lot of my recent messages, is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are putting our faith in the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who can move the heavens and the earth with a single word of his command. If that's the case, then why do we who believe in that God, why do we have to go through the same difficulties that those who don't believe in that God have to go through? Why do we have to experience the same troubles that they do? To some people, this doesn't make sense. And that's why this guy asked this question the way that he did. Why doesn't life seem any better for those who believe in Jesus versus those who don't? And when I first read this question, I'll tell you, my initial sort of temptation was to respond to this question kind of like a car salesman trying to make his last sale at the end of the month. And what I wanted to do is I just wanted to sell this person on Christianity. And I just wanted to talk about all the ways that I actually believed he was wrong. Because you know what? I do believe my life is better because Jesus is in it. I mean, I do believe there are tangible blessings that I have received in this life that I would not have if I did not believe in Jesus. And so I wanted to talk to this guy about, you know, all the answered prayer requests I've seen. And I want to talk to this guy about, the, as a pastor, the miraculous healings I've seen sometimes. And I want to talk about the people I've seen who've come to Jesus and been set free from addiction and set free from other sort of things that they're struggling with. And basically, I wanted to talk up all the great features of Christianity and tell this guy, no, if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be so much better, and here are all the reasons why. But before I could do that, I felt a weird sort of conviction. And I thought to myself, although that is true, and although I do believe absolutely that my life is better because Jesus is in it, what I started to think about is, but is that really what this is all about? And is that really the the primary reason that someone should come to Jesus? Because of what you can get from him. Is that really what all this is all about? Well, quite honestly, to hear some Christians talk today, especially in America here, the answer is yes. You know, in America these days, we've become obsessed with this idea of self-help, right? We've become obsessed with this idea of finding satisfaction and fulfillment and ways to improve your life, ways to better your life, ways to fulfill the dreams that we have for our lives. One of the common words today is the word life hack, right? We're, we're obsessed with trying to find these life hacks for our lives. And it's been my observation that in some churches today, in some churches today, that's how Christianity is often packaged and it's often sold. In fact, to hear some people talk, when you put your faith in Jesus, what Jesus becomes for you is he becomes your own personal life coach. He becomes your own personal wellness guide, maybe even your personal genie. And according to how some people talk, and honestly, my profession is the worst at this, according to how some people talk, it seems as though Jesus' job in our lives is to come alongside us and just to help us make the most out of life, help us make all of our dreams come true. And Christianity, therefore, is sometimes sold as nothing more than a faith that's all about what you can get from God, all about the ways that God can give you, you know, your best life now, to use the title of a famous book from a few years ago. And I believe that message is very popular today. But as popular as that message is, 
I just don't think that this is what, that's what this is all about. And I just don't think that that's what this book teaches. And I think that's what our passage in Romans chapter 11 shows us. I want to begin this passage by looking at the end of it, okay? I want to start at the end of this passage. Because at the beginning of verse 36, Paul just makes an astounding claim here about God. Talking about God here, Paul says this at the beginning of verse 36. He says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. For from him and through him and for him are all things. And this is one of those places in our Bibles, you guys, where we're paying attention to even the smallest of details brings out incredible meaning in the text. This is a very short sentence in the English language. It's, it's 12 words. But of these 12 words, a full, a full four of them, one-third of the words are actually just prepositions. And of the four prepositions that Paul uses, three are especially important. And those are the words from, through, and for in this verse. From, through, and for. For from him, and through him, and for him. Some of your Bibles there say to him. That also works, though I think for gets at it a little bit better. For from him, and through him, and for him are all things. And as I said, what Paul says here in this passage is just, it's, it's incredible. It's astounding. In fact, if I could summarize this short phrase, even in, in a little bit shorter summary, I'd summarize it this way. What Paul is telling us in this little phrase here is he's telling us that life is not about us. It's about God. Life is not about us. It's about God. I mean, that's what Paul is saying here. You begin at the end of this passage with the words, all things. And what does all things include? It includes all things. It includes everything we can see, and it includes everything we cannot see. And what Paul says here is he says that all things are from God. That speaks to God as the source of all things. All things are from him. He says that all things are through God. That speaks to God as the sustainer of all things. He's the one that holds all things together. And then he says that all things are for God. And that speaks to God as the goal of all things, as the purpose of all things. And what Paul says here is he says that God is the source of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And he is the goal of all things. Or said another way. If all this world is a stage, as Shakespeare famously wrote, if this is just kind of one big drama that's going on here, then what Paul is saying here is he's saying that God is the author of this drama. All things are, are from him. God is the main character in this drama. All things are through him. He is the one that holds this whole thing together. And God is also the audience of this drama. He's the one who's sitting out in the seats. He's the one that this play is being performed for. All things are for him. God is the source, he is the sustainer, and he is the goal. God is the author, he is the main character, and he is the audience. And what Paul is saying here is life is not about us. Life is about God. And as simple as that statement may sound right here, I told you, you may not hear anything that you haven't heard before. But as simple as that statement may sound, I think a lot of times we are really prone to forget that. I do. In preparing for this message this past week, I came across an interesting book that I know some of you have heard of before. In fact, I think some of you actually know one of the authors of this book. But the book has an interesting title. It's called Cat and Dog Theology. Cat and Dog Theology. And, and this book is based off a kind of funny observation, a humorous observation that, that some people have made before about one of the key differences between cats and dogs in this life. And the observation is this. You know, when you take care of a dog, right, when you feed a dog, when you pet a dog, when you show affection to a dog, 
because of a dog's personality, because of a dog's disposition, we really get the impression that a dog looks up at us and goes, wow, you feed me, you pet me, you take care of me, you must be God, right? I mean, isn't that sort of the impression that a dog gives off, that he's just enamored with us, he's just so in love with us. And so we get the impression that we take care of a dog, and a dog looks up at us and goes, wow, you must be God. That's the impression we get from a dog. But if you've ever interacted with a cat before, you you don't quite get the same impression from a cat, do you? I think I told you before, we have a cat in our family. Snickers is her name. She's seven or eight years old. And I'll tell you what, when I take care of my cat, when I feed it, when I pet it, when I show affection to it, I really get the impression that my cat looks up at me and goes, wow, you feed me, you pet me, you take care of me, I must be God, right? (laughs) I mean, isn't that sort of the impression a cat gives off? He just seems really impressed and enamored with himself, right? I must be God. Indeed, it's been said before that though dogs have masters, cats have servants. And I think that is exactly right. And, and the point that the authors are making in this, this little observation here is, is this. Going back to the email that I received earlier, I would absolutely disagree with the premise of that email. My life is better because Jesus is in it. I said that. You know, I, I really believe that there are tangible blessings that I have in my life that I would not have if Jesus were not in it. My life is better because Jesus is in it. And probably many of us would say the same thing as well. But there is a danger in that realization. And that danger is this. It's that it becomes very easy, brothers and sisters, to look at the good things that God has given us. To look at the ways that God makes our life better and to begin to adopt a cat-like mentality. It becomes really easy to look at the blessings that God has given us and begin to think, wow, I'm I'm pretty special, aren't I? I'm pretty extraordinary, aren't I? And very soon, what can begin to happen, and I've seen this happen in my own life, is pretty soon we can begin to feel as though we are owed those blessings by God. We are owed those sorts of things by God. And that's when, as I said earlier, that's when we begin to turn God into this personal genie, into this life coach. And we begin to feel as though God exists to make our dreams come true. That God is actually obligated to do only those things that would ensure our happiness and our fulfillment and our satisfaction in this life. But that's exactly where the problem begins to develop. And that's what sits behind this this question that this person asked. Because listen to me. If God is indeed obligated to only do the things that would cause us obvious happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in this life, then the honest truth of the matter is, he's not doing a very good job at it, is he? I mean, seriously. If God is obligated to only do those things that would help us fulfill our dreams in this life, he's not doing a very good job at that. Because as I said earlier, we still have to go through tough circumstances. There are a lot of things that get in the way of our dreams. There are a lot of things that get in the way, seemingly, of our happiness and our fulfillment and our satisfaction. And so if God is only obligated to do those things that would only cause us happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in this life, well, then he's not doing a very good job at that. So what gives? What's the deal? Paul tells us here. God is under no such obligation. God is under no such obligation. Why? Because this life is not about us. 
Because it's about God. Because we're not the author, we're not the star, we're not the audience. God is. And because this life is not about us, because this life is about God, one of the things that that means is that God has a right to do with us in this life whatever he wants. God has a right to do with our lives whatever he wants. And this is the point that Paul makes in the beginning of this passage. Pick it up again in verse 33 of this passage. Paul writes this. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? And there's something really interesting structurally going on in this passage. And I want to spend a couple minutes pointing it out to you because I find it to be kind of cool and it helps us understand what's going on here. But, but these three verses that I just read, they actually occur in two parts. The first part is just verse 33 by itself. And what Paul does in verse 33 is Paul makes three comments about God. He makes three statements about God. He begins, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's the first statement Paul makes. Secondly, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments. And then thirdly, he says, and his paths beyond tracing out. So in the first part of this passage, Paul makes three comments about God. In the second part of this passage, which is verses 34 and 35, what Paul does is he asks three questions about God. He asks three rhetorical questions about God. Verse 34, first question, who has known the mind of the Lord? Second question, right after that, or who has been his counselor? Third question, right after that, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? So here Paul asks three questions. He makes three comments, then he asks three questions. And the reason I tell you this is because these three comments that Paul makes and these three questions that Paul asks, they're actually connected together. They're actually linked together. It works like this. I had our team this weekend put together a chart to help us explain it, and we'll put this chart on the screen. But here's how it works, okay? The first comment that Paul makes about God is he makes this comment about the paths of God. Or no, the first comment that he makes about God is he makes this comment about the riches of God, the riches of God, uh, uh, the, of, of, of his wisdom and knowledge. And, and that comment, oh, the depths of the riches, that is connected to the last question that, that Paul asks there. When he says in verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? You see how that works? Paul talks about the riches of God, and then he talks about repayment. So those two are linked. And then the second comment that Paul makes about God, you see in the middle of that chart there, he begins by saying how unsearchable are his judgments. Well, that comment is connected to the second question that Paul asks when he says who has been God's counselor. Those two statements are connected. And then the final comment that Paul makes about God is he says that his paths are beyond tracing out. Well, that comment is connected to the the first question that Paul asks about God when he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Those two are connected. And so what you see here is there is this interesting parallelism that is going on in this particular passage. And the reason I point this out to you is because in each one of these parallel statements, in each one of these connected statements, there is a point that Paul is making about God. There's a lesson that Paul is teaching us about God. So, the first lesson is this. When Paul talks about the paths of God being beyond tracing out, and when Paul asks the question, who has known the mind of the Lord, the lesson that Paul is teaching us about God is this. It's that God has a right to do whatever he wants. It's that God has a right to do whatever he wants. Second, when Paul talks about the judgments of God being unsearchable, and he asks the question, who has been God's counselor? The point that Paul is making there is that when God acts, he doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. 
God doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. And then finally, when Paul talks about the depths of the riches of God, and then he asks this question, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? The point that Paul is making there is, in fact, God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, God doesn't owe us anything. And those are the points that Paul is making in this passage. God has a right to do with us whatever he wants. God doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. In fact, God doesn't owe us anything. Now, I want you to look at those three lessons right there, and I want to ask you a question. And the question is this. When was the last time you heard a sermon in a church that had as its three main points those three lessons right there? When was the last time you heard a sermon in a church that had any one of its main points, one of those three points right there? It hasn't been in the seven years that I've been here, at least from me. Maybe Matthew has taught it, but as I said, I haven't had the courage to teach this. Ashamedly, I haven't. And I think in our age of self-help that has infiltrated the church, I don't think we hear these lessons very much. They're not taught very much. But even though they're not taught very much, men and women, they're absolutely true. They're absolutely biblical. God has a right to do with us whatever he wants. He doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. Job found that out, by the way. And in fact, God doesn't owe us anything. Indeed, it is these three lessons right here that is behind what I think is one of the most difficult and also one of the most misunderstood images that we are given in the Bible to describe us and our relationship with God. And that is the image of the potter and the clay. The image of the potter and the clay. A couple of times in the Bible, it describes us and our relationship with God this way. It says that we are like clay, and it says that God is like a potter. And usually when I hear this image taught, it's usually taught in sort of a romanticized sort of way where it's taught about how, you know, there is beautiful pottery that God is making out of each and every one of us. And maybe that's one of the points that you can get from this, but that's actually not the main reason behind this illustration in Scripture. The main reason behind this illustration in Scripture, the reason why we have this illustration, is it's meant to teach us exactly what Paul teaches us here in Romans 11. It's meant to teach us that as the potter, God has a right to do with us whatever he wants. You know, having three kids now, one of the things that I have been recently reintroduced to in my life is, is that old toy Play-Doh, right? I mean, it's amazing to me, all the technology today, and kids still love playing with a toy that I played with when I was a little kid. And my three kids, they love playing with Play-Doh. And in watching my kids play with Play-Doh, I have, I have begun to understand this image of the potter and the clay in a way I never have before. Because I don't know if you've ever played with a little kid with Play-Doh before, but it can be absolutely maddening sometimes. And the reason why is they're always doing something new and they're always changing their mind. And so sometimes, you know, my son, he, I'll be playing with him, he's five years old, and, and he'll make this cool sculpture out of Play-Doh, he'll make a monster or something like that. And I'll think, wow, that looks really cool, right? My son's the next Michelangelo or whatever. And so I'll run and go to get my phone so I can take a picture of this sculpture that he has made. But by the time I've gotten my phone to take a picture of it, what has my son done? He has smashed it, right? And now he's making a boat, or now he's making a spoon, or a snake, or whatever it may be. And for me, someone like me, that's pretty frustrating sometimes. But you know what? As frustrating as it may be, my son has every right to do that. He has every right to do that. That's his Play-Doh. And he has every right to do with his Play-Doh whatever it is that he wants to do. And that's the right that the Bible says God has with us. 
In fact, listen to this particular passage, okay? You can turn here if you want. It's just a couple of chapters earlier in Romans. Romans 9, 20 through 21. We'll also put this on the screen. Here's one of the places where the potter and the clay is talked about. And listen to what Paul says here. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 20. He says, Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay, the same lump of Play-Doh, to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? Now, friends, church, this is not one of those precious moments verses, you know, that we have framed and hung in our living rooms throughout our homes, right? And yet, what an important section of Scripture, because what is Paul saying here? He's saying that God has a right to do with us whatever he wants. God has a right to do with our lives whatever he wants. If God wants to send a missionary to a foreign country, knowing full well that he will be killed in that country, God has a right to do that. If God wants to allow us to lose our job and face financial difficulty as a result, God has a right to do that. If God wants to to give a rotten person in this life success and have us struggle throughout most of our lives, God has a right to do that. He has a right to do whatever he wants. And when God acts, he doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does any more so than my son owes his Plato an explanation for what he has done. In fact, God doesn't owe us anything. Why? Because life is not about us. Because life is about God. Because he is the source, he is the sustainer, he is the goal, he is the author, he is the main character, he is the audience. It's about him. And listen, I know that this is difficult, especially if you've never heard this before. As I said, this is not the most popular message I've ever taught before. But as difficult as this may be, it is true. It is what the Bible teaches. And honestly, it's not until we begin to understand this that that quite seriously that life begins to make sense. And it's not until we begin to understand this that we find our meaning and our purpose in this world, the reason for which we exist. You know, there is a key difference between my son playing with Play-Doh and us as clay in our maker's hand. And the difference is this. When my son plays with Play-Doh, he has no rhyme or reason to what he does. There is no larger goal to what he creates and what he destroys. He just does all of this on a whim. That's not the case with God. When God acts, he always has a purpose. God has a goal in mind for every single decision that he makes. And what is that? You see it at the very end of this passage. Look at the last sentence of verse 36. Paul writes this. He says, To him, meaning to God, be the glory forever. Amen. To God be the glory forever. Amen. And the key word there is the word glory. And I find that word glory is one of those Bible words that we come across, we even use sometimes, but a lot of people don't really know what it means. What does it mean to say that God gets the glory? What does that word glory in our Bible mean? Well, the word glory means a few things in our Bible, but in this particular context, here's what you do. Replace the word glory with the word fame, and you understand what Paul is saying here. To him be the fame forever. To God be the fame forever. And that is God's purpose in this world. That is why God does things. 
This may sound weird to some of you, especially if you've never heard this before, but the Bible makes it clear, men and women, that God has one overarching goal on this earth. And you know what it is? It is to be famous. It is to be famous. God's goal on this earth is that he would get the credit, that he would get the honor, that his reputation would spread throughout this earth. God's goal is to be famous. Of course that's God's goal. Because God is the one who deserves all the credit. Because everything is from, through, and for him. God is the one who deserves all the honor. He is the only one whose reputation should be spread throughout this earth. And the more that God's reputation is spread throughout this earth, the more people will get to know him and the more people will be saved. And so that's God's goal. That's God's purpose, is that he would receive the glory. It's that he would receive the fame, that he would be recognized as the kind, loving, gracious, compassionate, just, holy, righteous God that he is. And what the Bible makes clear, men and women, is that when we become a Christian, and this is where it all comes together, when we put our faith in Jesus, guess what? That is to be our goal as well. What is our goal in this life? Our goal is to make God famous. Our goal is to make God famous. Our goal is to do whatever we can in this life to shine the spotlight on God and get it off of us. Our goal in this life is to make God famous. Now, do you see how different this is from how Christianity can be sold and packaged sometimes today? God's goal, our goal in life, or God's goal in our life, is not to make our dreams come true. We don't come to God to make our dreams come true. We don't come to God to find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. Though I believe that often happens when we come to God, that is not the purpose for which we come to God. God doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. In fact, what does Jesus say is the first step to becoming a Christian, to following after him? What does he say that we need to do? We need to deny ourselves. And I don't just think that means that we deny our sin. I think that means that we deny any hint of self-centeredness within us. Yes, we deny our dreams. We deny our desires to be famous and wealthy and well-liked and successful and whatever it may be. And we give ourselves wholly and completely over to one purpose. And that is to glorify God. That is to make God famous. It's like what John the Baptist says in John chapter 3 verse 30. When speaking of Jesus, he says this. He says, he, meaning Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must become more famous and I must become less famous. That's the goal. And this is, men and women, the secret of life. I told you this is going to be an important message. Well, here's one of the reasons why it's important. I'm about to give you right now the entire secret of this life. Are you ready for it? Here it is, okay? The secret of this life is this. No matter what we're going through in this life, it can be used to make God famous. God guarantees that. No matter what we are going through in this life can be used to make God famous. It works like this. For my closing illustration here, I'm going to use a variation of an illustration I've used before. Only this week I'm going to take it a little bit of a step further. 
And for this illustration, I have asked the help of two of our very talented students here at Friends Church. So would you do me a favor right now? Would you give a warm welcome to Hannah and Josie as they take the stage? So this is uh, Hannah over here, and this is Josie, and as you can tell, Hannah and Josie are musicians, okay? Hannah plays the violin, and she is in high school, and Josie plays the cello, and she is in junior high school, and they are sisters of each other. And what I've asked Hannah and Josie to do this weekend is I've asked them to perform for, for all of you one of my favorite pieces of classical music, and that is Pachelbel's very famous Canon in D. And if you are not a classical music aficionado, I promise you, you have heard this particular song before because it's often played at weddings. And trust me, as a pastor, I go to a lot of weddings and I hear this particular song a lot. But it's okay because it's one of my favorite pieces of classical music. So I've asked Hannah and Josie here to learn this. They probably already knew it. But I've asked them to learn it and play a portion of it for you here this weekend. And so Hannah and Josie, why don't you uh, take it away here and play some of Pachelbel's Canon in D. So how many of you recognize this song? Almost everybody, right? Yeah, you can clap for them, definitely. And don't worry, they'll play a little bit more in just a second. But very familiar song, very beautiful song. Here's what you may not realize about this particular song, okay? The cello player in this particular song, the way Pachelbel wrote this song, is he gave the cello player, quite honestly, one of the most boring parts in all of classical music, truly. And that is because throughout this entire song, all the cello player plays is the same eight notes over and over and over again. In fact, Josie, for all of us right now, why don't you play a little bit of the part that Pachelbel gave you to play throughout this song? Do you have anything else for us there? <laughs> That's all she plays throughout the entire song, those same eight notes over and over and over again. All the flashiness of the song, the melody of the song, the, the, the part that was most familiar to us, Pachelbel gave all of that to the violin player. Uh, Hannah, right now, why don't you play us some of your part, okay? Okay, so she gets all the really fun part in this. Yeah, you, you definitely you can applaud. Now, I noticed you didn't applaud for Josie when her, she did her part. What's going on? Whether you realize it or not, you just proved my point, and I'll talk about that in a second. So the way Pachelbel wrote this song is the violin player gets the fun part, the, the cello player gets the boring part. But 
When both of these come together, beautiful music is made. You two, why don't you, why don't you finish out the song for us here? Can we thank the two of them? Great job, you guys. Thank you very much. Anybody in the mood to get married right now? Anybody? So what's all that all about? Why did I show you that? Well, the reason I show you that is this. That's an illustration of life. It's an illustration of life. You know, every single one of us in this life has been given a part to play, right? That's what this passage is all about. Every single one of us in this life has been given by God a part to play. Some of us are going to be given a part in life to play that's a lot more like the violin player. It's flashier, it's more exciting, maybe it's more adventurous. Others of us, by God, are going to be given a part to play in life that's a little bit more like the cello player. It's a little bit more boring, maybe even our life will be a little bit more difficult than other people's. But here's the deal, okay? No matter what life God has given you, no matter what part God has given you to play, your individual part is not the point. It's not the point. Why did Pachelbel write these parts the way that he did? Why did he write these parts the way that he did? It wasn't to draw attention to each individual part. I really believe, men and women, if you leave a concert and your only thought is, oh, what an incredible violin player or, or, or what incredible cello player, I really believe that musicians have not done their job right. Because the reason why a composer writes individual parts the way that he does is not to draw attention to each individual part, but honestly, at the end of the day, it's to draw attention to himself. It's so that we would listen to a song and we would take a step back and we would go, oh my gosh, what a, what a beautiful song. Who wrote that? Who's its author? Who's its composer? I, I need to know as much about that composer as possible. And that's the reason why God gave us the lives that he gave us. Listen, if when you wake up every morning, your number one thought in this life is, how can I be happy today? If that's your number one goal each and every day, then you know what? You're going to go to bed some nights disappointed. Because the life that God has given you was not given to you with the primary intent of making you happy each and every day. If when you wake up every morning, your primary goal, your primary thought is I want to get my dreams fulfilled today, you're going to go to bed some nights frustrated and disappointed. Because the life that God has given you has not been given to you with the primary intent of getting your dreams fulfilled every single day. Now why did God give us the lives that he gave us? It's with one primary goal in mind. It's to make him famous. It's to glorify him. And if when you wake up every single morning, your number one goal is, how do I make God famous today? How do I get the spotlight shined on God today? Then let me tell you something. Every single night, you will go to bed the most satisfied, the most happiest, the most fulfilled person on this earth. Why? Because everything you go through in this life can be used to make God famous. He guarantees it because that's his goal. 
because all things are for him. Right now, where you are, you can make God famous in your job. You can make God famous in your unemployment. You can make God famous in your marriage. You can make God famous in your singleness. You can make God famous in your good health, and you can make God famous in your sickness. You can make God famous when you drive to work. You can make God famous when you walk around Disneyland. Sometimes it doesn't take very much. Sometimes all it takes is just a a warm smile, a kind word to someone, an affirmation that you're trusting in God despite your circumstances, a commitment to live by God's word even when everybody else is doing something different. Those are the sorts of things that cause people to take a step back and go, there's something different about you. Who is it that is holding your life together? Which is really the question of who is your author? Who is your composer? And that gives you an opportunity to point back to God. And that's what this is all about. You know, I I will readily admit that when I first became a Christian, when I first became a pastor even, I I think I was in it for myself, and I was in it for what I could get from God. But over time, God began to change my heart. And I don't do it perfectly. But I have one overarching goal in this life now. And that is to make God famous. That is to shine as much light on God as possible. That is to represent God as well as I can on this earth so that the spotlight gets taken off of me and it gets put on God. And I have found that there is no greater privilege in this life than when God uses us to glorify Him. And I want you to know that. Everything I have comes from God. If I have ever said anything from this stage that has positively affected you in any way, that is not me. That's honestly because I got out of the way and I let God do his work. Everything that I have comes from God. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, my desire is to make God famous. And I pray that I would never forget that. I pray that none of us would ever forget that. Because he is the one who deserves all the fame. It's exactly what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. To him be the fame forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.